Hi, and welcome to my new podcast. There's a book for that with me, Brimby, your host, and the resident bookworm in any friend group. The premise is simple. I love a good research-intensive podcast, but often they are coming from a very similar, narrow perspective. And I wanted something with a wider frame of reference. In this podcast, I will talk about different books I have read, mostly novels, and extrapolate some of their lessons to our world, eventually in multiple languages. So if you, like me, would like to understand the world from the perspective and often the literature of the global south, from those on the underside of history, the the stories that often go untold, then maybe this podcast is for you. Today, we're going to be talking about one of the main issues of the moment, hoping to come out on the right side of history of this. It's not how I plan to launch my podcast. We were supposed to be talking about Idris Elba as a giant wish-grunting genie, but oh well, I would still like to welcome you to the pod. I hope you'll find it occasionally funny. Not today. And informative and thought-provoking, but for this first episode, we are starting out sad. So I apologize in advance. There will be some descriptions of torture in it, so if that's not your bag, please come back next week to talk about the Emperor's new clothes and Enron. Or skip ahead. I'll let you know when it's coming. As Palestine burns, there are many powerful voices who support this conflict. They have their reasons. Time will tell if they're justified. There are many who disagree, who think that the collective punishment, displacement, and genocide of an entrapped, colonized population is wrong. There are also those who hold their ground in the middle, where it seems safe, where they can hide, hedge their bets, wait for the winners and losers to be declared. This might seem like a winning strategy to be silent and wait, not reveal too much, claim ignorance, not take sides. But it is an act of cowardice. And in a world in which popular opinion is a driving force, silence is in fact acquiescence. In the words of Arundhati Roy, author of excellent inscrutable books, though in a different context, quote, The trouble is, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And once you've seen it, keeping quiet, saying nothing, becomes as political an act as speaking out. There is no innocence. Either way, you're accountable. End quote. We have all seen what's happening. It has been advertised on our screens and we have seen it. It has been shouted from the rooftops and we have heard it. It has disrupted our travels, animated water coolers, burned up our data. We know. As Palestine burns under attack from an occupying force supported by Western governments, for some among us, the natural reaction is to look away. This is too heavy for me, we might say. Well, they started it, I think. People are dying everywhere. Why doesn't anyone care about, insert name here? It's natural, if you're unaffected, to seek excuses for looking away to justify apathy or hatred, innocence or self-concern. The world is very big, and its problems can often seem overwhelming. And we, who are small and powerless and can barely pay our bills, take care of our children, feed ourselves, why should we concern ourselves with what's happening thousands of miles away? I understand. Sort of. I have known fear. That uncomfortable knot in your stomach that causes you to look away when you should be brave enough to look even closer, to reach in and touch what will surely hurt you. I have known what it is to be laden with responsibilities, barely keeping my head above water and struggling with the constant myopia brought about by the nature of everyday living. I have experienced the gravity that keeps your feet on the ground, killing dreams and the hopes that one day things will be better, easier or lighter. I also know that I do not necessarily have the strength within myself to do the things that must be done at the right time. Fortunately, over the years, I've learned how to borrow strength and it is that borrowed strength that I would like to share with you now as we think about how best to resist the temptation to be complicit, to be silent witnesses to a genocide. In my 20s, I consider myself terrifically old now that I'm in my 30s, but in my 20s, I was optimistic. Life had thrown a lot of shit for me, but I still had the hope that one day my day would come and that things would turn around. It was like Martin McCutcheon. I don't know if anybody remembers that, but I was like, this is my moment. My moment hadn't come, but I hoped that one day it would, you know. 
I no longer hold on to these hopes for myself. (laughs) Not really. But I try to retain a little flame of hope for the world. In the past few weeks, though, it has been difficult to keep that flame going. In my 20s, I did have that energy to keep the flame not just alive, but well-stoked and warm. And of course, I used a lot of that energy to read indiscriminately. I came across a book, probably in the Senate House Library, about the struggle for liberation of South Africa under the apartheid government at the time. The book, Strike a Woman, Strike a Rock, stayed with me for a very long time. It profiles women who were active against the apartheid government across the cross-section of white and black women, telling their stories in their own words. Occasionally, over the years, that knot in my stomach would come back as I thought about one particular person, Ivy Trina, one of the women interviewed in the book and what she had gone through. I didn't remember anyone else's name in the book, but somehow her story embedded itself in my consciousness. And perhaps because it was while I was reading her story that I chickened out and put the book down permanently. I should have persevered and kept going, but I gave up because it was too awful too sad. I gave in to fear. So today I invite you to come back with me to hear Aifitrina's story, to take on her courage and fervor and find the strength to resist apartheid again, to challenge the domination of white supremacy and all ideologies of dehumanization and cruelty. Following the fall of the apartheid government in 1991, after decades of activism and, of course, international sanctions, Ivy Klina served as an MP for the ANC from 1994 until her retirement in 2004. In the book, Barbara McLean, the author of Strike a Woman, Strike a Rock, interviewed her in her office. Ivy Klina describes her experiences, the intimidation, the death of her children and her motivation. In an article in the Sowetan Live, a South African publication, following her death in 2021, we learn from an official ANC statement, quote, Ivy Klina was orphaned at a very young age and got her primary education through a church school. She joined the ANC Youth League in the 1950s and was active in bus boycotts and protests against Bantu education. Her children were born when the organizations were banned, and to ensure their political consciousness, she got her uncle to write out the Freedom Charter from memory. It was prohibited to be printed in those days. After the 1976 Soweto student uprising, Trina committed herself to the revival of the Federation of South African Women. When the Port Elizabeth Black Civic Organization was established, she headed the Women's Committee and in 1983 was elected the first Port Elizabeth Women's Organization Chair. Among activists, Ivy Klina was notable for her courage, her steadfastness in adversity. Not only was she frequently detained and assaulted, but her house was petrol bombed and at one point sprayed with acid. Umantlina was severely tortured through beatings and suffocation by named members of the security police in Port Elizabeth during the state of emergency in July 1985. She was again detained from June 1986 to June 1987. She lost three of her sons in the struggle, two in combat and one in exile. Four of her sons were combatants of Umkontowesizwe, end quote. The Freedom Charter mentioned there, which she insisted that her children should know from an early age, still informs the South African government's ANC's basic statement of principles. It was originally adopted by the Multiracial Congress of the People on June 26, 1955, and the preamble reads, quote, We, the people of South Africa, declare for all our country and the world to know that South Africa belongs to all who live in it, black and white, and that no government can justly claim authority unless it is based on the will of the people. That our people have been robbed of their birthright to land, liberty and peace by a form of government founded on injustice and inequality. That our country will never be prosperous or free until all our people live in brotherhood, enjoying equal rights and opportunities. That only a democratic state, based on the will of the people, can secure to all their birthright without distinction of color, race, sex, or belief. And therefore, we, the people of South Africa, black and white, together, equals countrymen and women and brothers, adopt this freedom charter. 
and we pledge ourselves to strive together, sparing nothing of our strength and courage until the democratic changes here set out have been won. End quote. I would like to take a moment to say that there was a multiracial people's congress in 1955, but the Rainbow Nation only came about after 1991. Progress takes time. But in the meantime, a lot of people suffer and die. It's unfair to ask them to wait patiently for their turn to be human beings. Now, Nkonto Wesizwe, or the Spear of the Nation, which Ivy Guna's children were members of, refers, of course, to the paramilitary wing of the ANC. It was also co-founded by that well-known terrorist Nelson Mandela in 1961 and finally disbanded in 1993, though he would continue to be a terrorist until 2008, according to some international governments. He was a terrorist while president. The organization was allied with a number of countries struggling for their liberty in Africa and further away and opposed, surprise, surprise, by Rhodesia and South Africa, with support from a large contingent of people who are also now actively supporting genocide. Mkonto Wesizwe was founded following the Sharpeville massacre in 1960 when the South African police opened fire on a crowd of more than 5,000 protesters, killing 69 and injuring 118. As Africans, black people, in South Africa struggled for their liberty under the apartheid government, they found that things were getting worse and not better, leading them to decide that it was time for a paramilitary wing. At the Rivonia trial, Rivonia is a place, and Mandela was there with his comrades. They were charged with four counts of sabotage and conspiracy to violently overthrow the government. He was then found guilty and sent to prison where he's remained for 27 years. Do you condemn him, this terrorist? He was, as I'm sure you know, a lawyer. And so when the time came, he used those skills to give an impassioned speech and apologia for the armed resistance and acts of sabotage that they carried out in pursuit of justice. I will read from that speech throughout this episode, starting with the following, in which he outlines the conditions under which Africans, black people, had been laboring in their quest for equal rights. Quote, the African National Congress was formed in 1912 to defend the rights of the African people, which had been seriously curtailed by the South Africa Act, and which were then being threatened by the Native Land Act. For 37 years, that is until 1949, it adhered strictly to a constitutional struggle. It put forward demands and resolutions. It sent delegations to the government in the belief that African grievances could be settled through peaceful discussion and that Africans could advance gradually to full political rights. But white governments remained unmoved and the rights of Africans became less instead of becoming greater. In the words of my leader, Chief Lutuli, who became president of the ANC and was later awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, I quote, so now I'm going to read to you from Chief Lutuli's words. This is what he sounded like, for those who don't know. Who will deny that the 30 years of my life have been spent knocking in vain, patiently, moderately, and modestly at a closed and barred door? What have been the fruits of moderation? The past 30 years have seen the greatest number of laws restricting our rights and progress. Until today, we have reached a stage where we have almost no rights at all. End quote. I will now continue with Mandela's words at the trial. In 1960, there was a shooting at Sharpeville, Mandela sounds like me, it's really weird, which resulted in the proclamation of a state of emergency and the declaration of the ANC as an unlawful organization. My colleagues and I, after careful consideration, decided that we would not obey this decree. The African people were not part of the government and did not make the laws by which they were governed. We believed in the words of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that the will of the people shall be the basis of authority of the government. And for us to accept the banning was equivalent to accepting the silencing of the African people for all time. The ANC refused to dissolve, but instead went underground. We believed it was our duty to preserve this organization, which had been built up with almost 50 years of unremitting toil. 
I have no doubt that no self-respecting white political organization would disband itself if declared illegal by a government in which it had no say. End quote. As I've grown older, I found Mandela to be perhaps overly optimistic. I suppose one does not become a lawyer unless one believes in the law. But I find that the law is rarely uniformly applied to brown and black people, so I'm therefore less inclined to believe in the validity of international law. However, as part of his speech, he said of the systems which are now keeping a genocide going, quote, from my reading of Marxist literature and from conversation with Marxists, there was a big deal about communism at the time. I have gained the impression that communists regard the parliamentary system of the West as undemocratic and reactionary. But on the contrary, I am an admirer of such a system. The Magna Carta, the Petition of Rights, the Bill of Rights are documents which are held in veneration by dem Democrats throughout the world. I have great respect for British political institutions and for the country's system of justice. I regard the British Parliament as the most democratic institution in the world, and the independence and impartiality of its judiciary never fail to arouse my admiration. The American Congress, that country's doctrine of separation of powers, as well as the independence of its judiciary, arouse in me similar sentiments. End quote. I'm not sure what he would say if he was here today to see Palestine being bombed with white phosphorus against international laws and all those Magna Carta people creating draconian laws to oppress their own citizens should they dare speak out against a genocide. Perhaps he would have flashbacks and see that while things have ostensibly moved forward, white is still might and might is always right. In the face of such blatant revisionism and the use of international law to support the ethnic cleansing of a people, I believe that we have no option but to resist. We must resist the temptation to be silent in the face of genocide, the temptation to call it something other than what it is, the temptation to say Gaza is not a concentration camp, making it easy for those who would commit genocide to find and get rid of their victims, seeing as that in a nice little box. We must resist the temptation to use nice words and say that it's not an ethnic cleansing, not forced displacement for the purposes of capitalism and white supremacy. We must resist and find the strength to denounce Islamophobia and the events that are taking place in Palestine right now. When I talk about resistance, especially at such a time when tensions are high and it's easy to get riled up and for what's happening in Palestine to be reframed or for other people to frame us talking about what's happening in Palestine as being anti-Semitic, but I'm okay with that. I've made peace with it. Okay. Speaking for myself though, part of why I resist is because of the love that I had for a Jewish person in my youth. So as a young child, I was a voracious reader. Obviously, that's why I have a podcast about books. So I was nine, around about then, and I was bored. I'd run out of books in the school cupboard. We used to have a little cupboard in the classroom. I don't know if anybody else had this. So we had a little cupboard in the classroom. And I'm guessing that I'd also run off my school library books as well. Perhaps it was a holiday. I don't know. But anyway, I raided my mom's bookshelf. And I found a book about a young girl. She was 13, and obviously when you're nine, you're guns to read a story about a 13-year-old girl because you're like sisters, you know? So it was easy for me to see her as a friend. And I read this story about my friend who spent most of her life, at the time of writing, waiting for her period to come and for a boy named Peter to like her. Those were the two big things we wanted to know as we went through the book, yeah? Me and Anne. They were hiding in an attic for reasons I didn't quite understand in a place called Amsterdam that I'd never heard of and definitely would not have been able to find on a map. At that time, I was in Zimbabwe, but I knew that this girl, however different she was, her life was dear to me. I loved reading her diary, her insight into her life. But when I got to the end of the book and I read the postscript by her father, letting me know that whatever had been happening, these events that I didn't understand, the need to hide in the attic, the secrecy, the hunger, the silence, had ended in her death, I was shocked. I was devastated. Part of the moral of that story is not to let your children just pick up books and read, them, and read them without telling them what's going on because it really messes them up. But I read this book and it affected me because I always thought, and definitely as I've gotten older, I am certain, 100%, that if I could have done something to keep my friend alive, I would have. 
if I could have thrown a rock at a Nazi or worse, and it would have saved her life, I would have. I would have done it. So over the past few weeks, nearly 10,000 just like her have died under terrible conditions. Children, mothers, brothers, husbands, young people with their futures before them. All because of some ideologies and thoughts of five, six, seven people had and they managed to spread out their propaganda like a disease to a bunch of other people until everyone decided that they were powerful enough that they would take action, that they would dehumanize this little girl and people like her for no other reason than that she was born how she was born, to whom she was born. And that was a reason to kill her in a cruel and weird way. If I had been there, I would have fought tooth and nail for her, for her family, whoever. And so now when I look at Palestine, the same impulse arises. The same forces which led to the death of my friend in a freezing camp somewhere when she was barely even a teenager with life gloriously beckoning before her are the same ones that are operating now in Palestine. So I react the same way. I want to find a way to run, to pick up my friend, to offer a place of sympathy or silence. When we talk about domination or dehumanization, when we talk about the ideologies that make people justify putting people in concentration camps, justify calling people human animals or calling for the obliteration of a people, it's important to remember that it doesn't matter who's doing the genocide. It doesn't matter to whom the genocide is being done. The genocide itself is what is wrong. And that is what we oppose. I don't need to like people to stand up for them. It's not because I loved Anne Frank that I would stand up for her. It's because genocide is wrong. Stop killing fucking people. When we talk about resistance, we're not talking about fighting individuals, but systems. We're talking about the systems that underlie the wickedness that we are seeing in the world right now. This is the same wickedness that has ravaged the global south, ending bloodlines, the theft of land, the displacement, the dehumanization. We're talking about capitalism, white supremacy, racism, Islamophobia. These are systems that have informed lives for centuries. For those of us who come from parts of the world where we have been secondhand people, second class citizens, we recognize it. And so we resist because we know that there has never been a time when people came together and said, hey, I know, let's do a racism. And then at some point they decided, you know what? This is enough for me. I've stolen enough land and resources. I've killed enough people. I'm tired. I'm going to go home and watch TV. Let's stop. And they just stopped on their own. It's never happened. As long as they can get away with it, they will continue to do it. So when we resist, we do it because we believe in the sanctity of human life. All of them, not just the ones that we like. Thank you for making it this far. If you're still uncertain about whether you should resist, here are a few more reasons. Number one, it is in your own self-interest, especially if you don't fit the ideal, which is at this time, as we saw with a certain war that broke out, white and not Muslim, then it's in your own self-interest to resist because what we are seeing in Palestine is a test case and if all the Palestinians go, somebody else will be up. We must resist because our very lives are at stake and we're only as safe as long as there is someone less safe than us. But one day, it will be your turn, you and the special group you belong to that you believe is exempt. The same factors that are driving this genocide are the same ones that have driven colonialism, imperialism, slavery, even gun violence, poor education, and the lack of access to universal health care in the richest country in the world. Capitalism funds genocides in Congo, where many are dying to feed the greed of the rich, or in Brazil, where many indigenous activists have also been murdered, or in Western Sahara, or in Papua New Guinea, or affecting the rights of aboriginals in Australia. It's all the same thing. The case of Palestine is not an isolated insult incident, but a part of the blood-soaked tapestry of capitalism and white supremacy, which has tainted the world for so long. Look, the actors might have changed, but the playbook remains the same. Secondly, we must resist because capitalism will never be sated. Capitalism is not the same as these ancient gods or monsters that we read about in myths and legends where you could make an annual sacrifice to the god or monster, leave a willing virgin or unwillingly as was more likely the case. And, you know, the angry god or the monster or the tyrant would go away for a while. 
Capitalism demands sacrifice every hour, every minute, every second of every day. And so in resisting, we acknowledge that we cannot bring enough sheep or goats or gold or silver or cobalt or oil of virgins to keep this ravenous appetite at bay and eventually it will consume itself and us with it. There is oil in Palestine. Do you remember when the US taught Iraq about democracy on their oil fields? Come on, guys. Thirdly, we must resist in solidarity. Just because it's not affecting you is not a reason to sit down. The liberation movements of Africa were intertwined and thus effective because it was understood that all liberation was mutual. Different leaders supported each other and Mandela in his speech during his trial name drops the leaders of newly independent African nations who provided support. Quote, it was on this note that I left South Africa to proceed to Addis Ababa as a delegate of the ANC. My tour was successful beyond all our hopes. Wherever I went, I met sympathy for our cause and promises of help. All Africa was united against the stand of white South Africa. And even in London, I was received with great sympathy by political leaders such as the late Mr. Hugh Getzgal and Mr. Grimond. In Africa, I was promised support by men such as Julius Nyerere, now president of Tanganyika, and Mr. Kawawa, then prime minister of Tanganyika. Emperor Heli Selassie of Ethiopia, General Aboud, President of the Sudan, Habib Bourguiba, President of Tunisia, Ben Bella, now President of Algeria, Modiba Keita, President of Mali, Leopold Senghor, President of Senegal, Sekou Toure, President of Guinea, President Tabman of Liberia, and Milton Obote, Prime Minister of Uganda, and Kenneth Kaunda, now Prime Minister of Northern Rhodesia, Zambia. It was Ben Bella who invited me to visit Ojda, the headquarters of the Algerian Army of National Liberation, the visit which is described in my diary, one of the exhibits, end quote. He stayed consistent and in an address at the International Day of Solidarity with Palestinian People in Pretoria on June 4, on December 4, 1997, Mandela, now president of South Africa, said, quote, the temptation in our situation is to speak in muffled tones about an issue such as the right of the people of Palestine to a state of their own. We can easily be enticed to read reconciliation and fairness as meaning parity between justice and injustice. Having achieved our own freedom, we can fall into the trap of washing our hands of difficulties that others face. Yet we would be less than human if we did so. It behooves all South Africans, themselves erstwhile beneficiaries of generous inter international support, to stand up and be counted among those contributing actively to the cause of freedom and justice, end quote. It makes my heart happy to know that South Africans are continuing, even from the president down. As long as any single people are oppressed and unable to live in peace in their own land, none of us should feel comfortable. Number four, we resist because we understand our own weaknesses. We know our own blind spots where we have been overcome by fear or rage and acted poorly. We resist, therefore, because while we understand the impulse to protect one's own by any means necessary, we understand and recognize that this cuts both ways. Our resistance must never shy away from the sure knowledge that those on the other side, the other team, love their husbands, wives, children, land, people, families, and lives as much as we do. Five, we must resist because apathy and despondency are hope killers and we cannot afford to lose hope. We must instead lose ourselves in our activities, our shared goals. This is a good time for me to come back to Ivy Queen. One of the reasons I stopped reading the book it's because she was talking about the way that they treated her and it just sounded really painful and sometimes we're not ready for that pain in our own lives. This is where you can skip ahead about three to five minutes. She was arrested so much that she said that if there were two days when I was not picked up, I would think, what did I miss? What have I not done today? And she describes her experience of torture in 1985 at the hands of, black, of a black collaborator as well as white people once again. Quote, he hit me to the early hours of the morning, that black one. Skin folk, kin folk, etc. I don't know for how long. I could feel something going down my throat. It smelled like blood. Then my eyes sunk in. Then another security branch saying Africans, I am stubborn. 
They stopped that black one and he went out. The others, they say to me, we're going to talk here. We're going to hit you until you talk. This one hits me with something like a pipe that is hard on my back, my legs, elsewhere, until very late, until he gets tired. My whole body is pitch black. They say that they know the whole thing, but they want me to confess with my own mouth to say that I took the children out of the country. And when they came back into the country, I keep them. Uh, end quote. So they wanted her to confess that because her children were part of Mgonto Esizwe, they were part of the resistance, uh, she, they wanted her to say that she had taken them out of the country to where the, the Mgonto Esizwe fighters were gathered and that when they came back into the country, she hid them. They're her children. Duh. The quote continues. I said, if you have the knowledge of this, why don't you arrest me and charge me? They said, no, you are too clever. I said, no, I'm not clever. I'm working here in your presence. Then they took me to another room. There's a big machine there. It's a choking machine, I think. It was very late now. I couldn't breathe. I wanted to faint, but I think I must stay strong. While this white policeman is beating me, another one came, shock my neck. Another one came to shock my leg. I fell down. And when I stood up, another one takes my head and hits it on the wall. When they hit me, I always bite my teeth together. Then I do not bite my tongue. End quote. She describes the long-term damage in the book, an impaired sense of smell, her damaged ear, the months in solitary confinement and much more. She talks about the threats, the harassment, the physical threats to her person, the acid in the bed, the petrol bombs in the house. She lost so much and talks about the deaths of her children. Reading her account, I was struck by the cruelty of it all. And I wondered where those people who had done all those things were now. But I really admire her because she was steadfast. She never hesitated. And she says, quote, no, I was not afraid. I was prepared to die, actually. End quote. We must resist the temptation to think that resistance is easy. I would like to take a little detour here. As we know, Christian Zionism is playing a really large role in what's happening right now. In the Bible, there's a the concept of a scapegoat which is part of the atonement that the people of God had to do because they were misbehaving and God didn't like it. And so in the Old Testament, what would happen was that the priests would come together uh, for a sacrifice or for the atonement. And knowing that they were all sinners and God was mad at them, God had also given them a way out of that. And this is where the idea of a scapegoat comes from, where that word that we literally use comes from. The scapegoat was a literal goat. From Leviticus 16 verse 20, we learn, quote, When Aaron had finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he had to make sure that everything was Kadesh. It was good to go. And he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it into the wilderness. So the priest will come, Everybody will be like, oh, yeah, this is what I did. I shouted at my mom. I slept with my sister's nephew, blah, blah, blah. And then they would confess all those sins over the goat. And then basically the goat now becomes the most sinful thing for like, you know, a thousand mile radius. And then they like do dash the goat to like a nearby lion in the wilderness. And that's the end of that. Everybody's good. What we are seeing now is a scapegoating of Palestinians by the West. But it's really important to remember, I mean, the goat wasn't a volunteer, but in the New Testament, which the Christian Zionists will also be holding on to, because one of the reasons why everybody loves Jesus is because he did the same thing. He volunteered to be the goat, but for all of humanity, so that there would be no need for goats in future, which is why you don't see Christians sacrificing goats because Jesus was like the last scapegoat, right? But really, it's important to remember there's no Palestinian who volunteered for this. 
Hitler and the Nazis were really bad people and they did so many atrocious things to Jewish people, but we have not seen anyone calling any Westerner a human animal or even a Nazi, even though we have seen literal Holocaust deniers and Nazis marching over the past few years. Yet Palestinians have been called all manner of names, suffering all manner of cruelty because the West has found a way to put their guilt on the Palestinian people, thus releasing themselves to move about their daily lives and let the Palestinians be murdered for their guilt. It's not my place to say, but Palestinians were not there trying to kill Jewish people, and yet they've been called animals on TV. And their only crime is that they were there a hundred years ago in a land that British people had happened to colonize and felt free to give out to other people. If anybody, why didn't the people who had done the bad thing do a reparations and give some of their land away? Wouldn't that have made more sense? African land was given away and nobody even asked us and we didn't even do a genocide. Anyway, we know why. We must resist the temptation to wipe our dirty hands on other people's souls. Number seven, we must resist for what we will gain. Everyone really admires Nelson Mandela for his sacrifices. He spent 27 years in prison. He basically lost his life after 40 I did all these things for the country, for the liberation that they were fighting for. And all that time he was a terrorist. But now when we talk about him, he's a Nobel Prize winner. He's a great guy. But when you read about what he was actually saying, the reason why he went to do all these things, the reason why he formed this paramilitary arm, the reason why they were fighting, why he was traveling to all those people, you realize that he wasn't peacefully just kind of like knocking on doors and saying, guys, give us rights. He was actively and vehemently against the system of repression. He says, quote, South Africa is the richest country in Africa and could be one of the richest countries in the world but it is a land of extremes and remarkable contrasts. It may well be the highest standard of living in the world, while Africans, black people, live in poverty and misery, while 40% of the Africans live in hopelessly overcrowded and in some case, drought-stricken reserves. Reserves, this word, um, is like Gaza. It's an area where colonizers come, they take your land and they push you out onto these ugly places where there's no water. You can barely even grow your own food or live. Where I'm from, in my language, in Shona, we call this Maruzeva. That's where the word comes from because they took the land from your people and they just basically pushed them out to these reserves where they had to make a new life for themselves, right? He continues, quote, 40% of the Africans live in hopelessly overcrowded and in some cases drought-stricken reserves where soil erosion and the overworking of the soil makes it impossible to live properly off the land. So you must imagine that for people living in, I don't know, places like Africa before colonization, you wouldn't make your home somewhere where you couldn't grow food if growing food was how you lived, right? You'd keep walking until you found somewhere where you could live. The reserves basically undid that and said, you're going to live where we say you live because actually this is my farm now. All 50,000 hectares of it. 30% of, um, I'm continuing with Mandela's quote, 30% are laborers, labor tenants and squatters on white farms and work and live under conditions similar to those of the serfs in the Middle Ages. The other 30% live in towns where they have developed economic and social habits, which bring them closer in many respects to white standards. Yet most Africans, black people in this group, are impoverished by low incomes and the high cost of living. When you read this, this could be stated by a Palestinian today. These are the words that resonate with many people who have experienced colonialism, who have experienced what it is to be a second-class citizen in their own home. The lack of human dignity experienced by Africans is the direct result of the policy of white supremacy. White supremacy implies black inferiority. Legislation designed to preserve white supremacy entrenches this notion. Menial tasks in South Africa are invariably performed by Africans. When anything has to be carried or cleaned, the white man will look around for an African to do it for him, whether the African is employed by him or not. Because of this sort of attitude, whites turn to regard Africans as a separate breed. They do not look upon them as people with families of their own. They do not realize that we have emotions, that we fall in love like white people do, that we want to be with our wives and children like white people. We 
want to be with theirs, that we want to earn money, enough money to support our families properly, to feed and clothe them and send them to school. And what houseboy or garden boy or laborer can ever hope to do this? Africans want to be paid a living wage. Africans want to perform work of which they are capable of doing and not work which the government declares them to be capable of. We want to be allowed to live where we obtain work and not to be endorsed out of an area because we were not born there. We want to be allowed and not obliged to live in rented houses, which we can never call our own. We want to be part of the general population and not confined to living in our ghettos. We want to be allowed out after 11 o'clock at night and not to be confined to our rooms like little children. We want to be allowed to travel in our own country and to seek work where we want to, when we want to, and not where the Labour Bureau tells us to. We want a just share in the whole of South Africa. We want security and a stake in society. And above all, my Lord, we want equal political rights because without them, our disabilities will be permanent. I know this sounds revolutionary to the whites in this country because the majority of voters will be Africans. That's the case now in South Africa. This makes the white men fear democracy. But this fear cannot be allowed to stand in the way of the only solution which, which will guarantee racial harmony and freedom for all. It is not true that the enfranchisement of all will result in racial domination. Political division based on color is entirely artificial and when it happens, so will the domination of one color group by another. The ANC has spent half a century fighting against racialism. When it triumphs, as it certainly must, it will not change that policy. End quote. We must resist because that is human nature. This is number eight now. Growing up, I was a fervent Christian and one of my favorite books in the Bible was the book of Esther in which we learn of an attempt to murder all the Jews. A lot of Jewish history has a threat of genocide in it. The threat of being wiped out, being so small, so insignificant among your neighbors that there's always the threat of death. From the enslavement in Egypt to the babies murdered in Exodus, the books of Esther, Daniel, Nehemiah, and even the New Testament with the murdered babies by Herod point to a history of near misses. So when I see some Jewish people say that Jewish people need to remain in exile as a condition of what God wants for them, I personally, as an African whose people fought for freedom and who can now go home to Zimbabwe and be among people like me, speak my language, understand, I understand the need. I understand why you'd want to have your own place. And honestly, I support it. But I do find it a little strange that Palestinians would suffer for it and not, you know, the people who did the very bad things. The scramble for Africa involved just drawing lines on a map and making new countries. It's actually not hard. While I'm talking about Jewish people at this stage, I think it's important that we honor those people who go against their communities to fight against things like apartheid. In South Africa, for example, there's a well-known couple called Ruth First and Joe Slovo. And Ruth First actually lost her life because the South African police sent her a parcel bomb because she was such a prominent anti-apartheid activist. Her husband, Joe Slovo, lived to see the day when apartheid was over. Not much longer, but he lived to see it. And these people who go against their communities, who go against basically their self-interest, because what Mandela is talking about in the section before, where he says um, people are afraid of democracy because they're afraid that once the black people... Um, are free to vote etc it will be terrible for the white people this is a legitimate fear no it's not legitimate but it's an actual fear that white people have that colonizers have i don't think it's actually happened anywhere but it's a fear that people have and so to go against that is basically to say i'm not going to make the most of the privilege that i have just by being born white i'm going to fight i'm going to inconvenience myself i'm going to make my life uncomfortable and there have been so many Jewish people that we've seen at this time who are speaking out, who are saying not in my name. And I think it's important for us to honor that because community is really everything. And if you don't have community because you chose to stand up with people who are not like you, this is very brave. But like I said, um, in wanting that equality, there perhaps should have been a solution that allowed Jewish people to have a homeland that didn't involve genocide. Anyway, in the book of Esther, we're now talking about resisting because it's human nature. 
in the Bible, in the book of Esther, one of my favorite books, uh, it tells the story of a very beautiful, smart girl who's used by God and her uncle, Mordechai, excellent name, to save the lives of the Jewish people. Backstory, Esther, or Hadassah, as she was known, an orphan girl raised by her uncle ended up married to the king because he was basically collecting wives. He didn't like the first one, so he was like, I'll get a few more. At the same time, a big-time anti-Semite called Haman had sort of tricked the king into signing a decree to have the Jews in all of Persia murdered. Persia was like a fifth of the world at the time, so the decree meant that any Jewish people across the whole empire could be killed, which would have basically been an extermination, right? So Esther, as a prompting of her uncle, goes to talk to the king and says, um, dude, I thought you liked me. And he's like, I totes do, baby. What's up? And she goes, well, apparently you gave this guy Haman to kill my people. And the king's like, oh, I didn't know that that's what was going to happen. Because sometimes our leaders sign things or say things without really thinking about the effects of what they are saying or signing. Either they're truly pernicious or super dumb. The jury's still out. Anyway, Esther goes, oh, well, since it was all a mistake, could you undo that? And that would be tickety-boo. And the king's like, I'm a man of my word. This is Persia. We don't lie. When I put my soul to a genocide, I can't undo it. But what I can do is give Jewish people the right to defend themselves. Thus, the Jewish people were able to take up arms and defend themselves and fight back against those people who wanted to kill them. And I think that that's a really important story. And the reason why is that if the Jewish people had simply taken up arms and defended themselves without the edict from the king saying that they called, they would have been in the wrong. That would have been illegal. That act of self-defense would have been illegal because only the state has the monopoly on violence, even if you're defending yourself and your people. Oftentimes, the difference between terrorism and self-defense is just about who supports you. So you need high fr friends in high places to commit a genocide, like, hey man, he had to come and ask for permission to kill these people. But on the other side of that coin, you also need high fr friends in high places to defend yourself against genocide. Otherwise, you're a dirty, filthy terrorist. Would we condemn Esther and her people if they had taken up arms in their own defense? If the king had been like, sorry, babe, can't do anything about it. Nice to know you. Accept your death. The last few weeks have given me a lot to think about. <sighs> so we've reached the end. Thank you so much for sticking with me. Um, these are supposed to be 45 minutes and they're supposed to be a lot more fun. But here we are. The final thing is that we must resist in order to hold on to our humanity. I'm sure that future historians will have a lot to study about this period. But I believe that there are those for whom fellow feeling for other humans who are not like them is very low. Perhaps they don't even consider these other humans to be human at all. And for these individuals, the influx of videos online of people suffering, of dead babies, of beheaded people are quite titillating. These individuals are the same people who would have been going out on a day trip with their families to watch Christians get fed to the lions of the Colosseum. They would have aimed for front row seats to lynchings, taken pictures for the podcasts, for the postcards, collected souvenirs from the guillotine and wanted to be spluttered by the blood that fell from people having their guts ripped out. They would have been the first to follow the groups chasing witches, watching them get drowned or burned at the stake while eating snacks and laughing. Curiosity would have driven them to want to know how loud a person can scream, how long it takes for someone to be boiled in oil. Maybe they would have made bets. They would have wanted to see the lions tear people limb from limb and would want to be there feeling the warm blood splashing on their bodies when dissidents were hung, drawn and quartered. Perhaps they would have sneakily cut off a finger and ear to keep as a souvenir. Human beings have a long history of watching people that they don't like, disagree with or don't look like being murdered in public, and for a long time that was entertainment. The history of watching black and brown bodies being violated is not new, and for those people who watch, who enjoy watching melanated people suffer, all their Christmases have come at once. And the longer that this goes on, the more those people will have to share, to laugh about, to glory over, and quite frankly, we can't let that happen. 
with the availability of social media, there's so much content that anyone who has these wicked hearts can just watch people suffer and cry to their heart's content, looking up the tiny, fragile bodies at any time. We are being forced to show bodies to prove that people died because world leaders are saying that these bodies don't exist. But by so doing, we're giving more access to these people. We must resist and fight to end the slaughter quickly so that those who have shown time and again that they don't believe that those who are not like them feel pain have nothing to play with. A month's worth of tears and anguish has not melted a single heart. And so we must accept the possibility that this is pleasing to them. We must thus resist to extinguish that fire, to suck out the oxygen from this system and make it impossible for people to continue exercising their lack of empathy. We must resist and deprive those who are so willing to believe in the superiority of one life over another of that which brings them joy. Let them be miserable. I will finish here with a final word from the terrorist Nelson Mandela. More strength for us to borrow, more wisdom for us to aspire to. Quote, Our struggle is a national one. It is a struggle of the African people, the Aboriginal people, Sahrawi people, Palestinian people, Congolese people, Sudanese people. Inspired by our own suffering and our own experience, It is a struggle for the right to live. During my lifetime, I have dedicated my life to the struggle of the African people. I have fought against white domination and I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in a harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an ideal for which I hope to live for and to see realized. But my Lord, if it needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. End quote. That concludes this first episode. Thank you so much for sticking with me. Please join me next week when I'll be talking about the Emperor's New Clothes and our book for the day, The Smartest Guys in the Room, talking about Enron. If you liked this episode, please pass it along. And in the meantime, a luta continua. Thank you.